Congratulations, you've made it to the See It To Be It podcast, formerly On The Spot, where we sit down with some of the most inspiring female leaders and role models. This week for our first ever live See It To Be It podcast, we're sitting down with Alyssa Rapp, entrepreneur, executive, and author of the new book, Leadership and Life Hacks. It's an inspiring conversation today and every Thursday. So be sure to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss a single episode of See It To Be It. Available every Thursday on your favorite podcast streaming services. Tonight is kind of a special night because you see this crazy microphone back here. I do a weekly podcast called the See It To Be It podcast on all your favorite streaming channels, but tonight is the first night we're actually doing it live. Love it. You know, it's not streaming live, but we're going to be live here. So all your Q&As, all of our listeners out there around the globe are going to be able to hear you. But I thought this would be a fun way to be able to share this fireside chat tonight, even though there's no fire, but there could be, which is like a miracle because it's actually cold today, which never happens. Anyways, you have such a, an incredible, I guess, diverse journey of just all the things you've done. I mean, starting out with gymnast, which was near and near, I was a gymnast, my my thunder thighs are going to prove it. But just from, you know, to entrepreneur to, you know, now you're in corporate leadership and just kind of tell us a little bit about that journey. Let us know a little bit about you. Well, thank you for asking. There are a bunch of themes that are consistent between at least gymnastics and entrepreneurship. So maybe I'll start there for the entrepreneurs in the room. And I know there are many. And the gymnastics journey was not one that I chose. It sort of chose me. I had done all the sports that included little girls in pretty boxes as the book was coined. So ice skating pretty seriously, four, five, six, then was doing gymnastics, had to pick because they were both four or five day a week things at that point. So from seven to 17, I was in the gym six to nine, five days a week. My mom's name Annie drove me and a friend of Caroline's and mine, Mickey, to gymnastics, and her father drove us home, I think, every day for 10 years. So there is a fair amount of discipline that comes from that rigor of athletics from that age and pretty scheduled. And then when you add a dance to the mix in junior high and high school for, you know, three to four of the last periods of high school, we had a wonderful dance program. We were blessed. But it was, you know, morning was 5 to 6 a.m., finish up the homework I hadn't finished the night before, eat breakfast, plow through more homework, leave the house at 8.06, as Abby and Caroline know, to get to school. It started at 8.10, at 8.11, just at the edge of the ding. You know, plow through school, go to dance, have a snack, do an hour of homework, go to gymnastics, get home, do homework, sneaking calls to boys, go to bed and do it all over again. <laughs> Sounds just like entrepreneurship, just except not the sneaking calls to boys part. No, no. But I think that, and my husband's been extraordinarily supportive, which I cannot say enough about emotionally. And that was crucial through some of the harder years of that journey and today. But I think that the resilience that I learned as a childhood athlete and the framing of it I, I talk about in the book is in terms of conquering fear. There was a skill I did on the balance beam in my last years was called a back handspring, feet, hands, feet, layout, step out, no hands, feet, hands, feet. And I was a few inches shorter then, but I was just squeezing that into the beam, which is 16 feet long and four feet off the ground and four inches wide. And I remember before I started the pass, the interesting thing about the balance beam was terrifying apparatus is that to learn the skills first you start the pass on a white piece of tape on the floor where the consequences of falling are low <laughs> then you do it on the balance beam but there are blue athletic mats that are stacked up to the bottom of the beam so all you're really doing it on is the beam with no falling so once you can do it there you've pretty much mastered the skill and part of that exercise and journey is 
muscle repetition and beating fear into submission through repetition. Then once you've got it nailed on the beam with the mat stacked up to the flush with the beam, removing the mat is simply a game of the mind. And really what I learned through that experience that conquering the skill was about conquering the fear in your mind. And if you believed you had it before you began and you committed to it before you began, then you ultimately had it. And that is exactly what being an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley was for me. You're seeing a market for four other people. You're selling investors on your vision of that market. They're taking a leap of faith on you. You're then actualizing that vision and inevitably the wind blows the wrong way and you get blown off course. You have to find your way back or pivot entirely. But ultimately that fundamental grit, willingness to be fear into submission and stick-to-itiveness is what I learned at least the hard way in Silicon Valley that is necessary, albeit not sufficient, for success. And I had a lot of great things happen in my first company and tremendous investors I really adore who believed in me. I had some weird market climate stuff. There was a regulatory shift midstream. I had to pivot strategies, had some of the Me Too shit happen with a guy on my board. That was pretty awful. Like I've lived some of those journeys. And what I can say is I learned through that. I was talking about this with a friend who's here in Austin. He's an entrepreneur. He and his wife have a company here today. And I was saying that in that first company, it was really great vision, probably too early to the market and, and yet had some strange exogenous factors, which is off path and back on path. We ended up pivoting strategy sticking with it, building a media company in the wine space, partnering with Conde Nast, having an exit to a hedge fund, all that was fine and good. But at the end of the day, there were things that happened that I realized were outside of my control. And what I'm realizing in the company I'm in now that were hard. And then in the company I'm in now, which is a healthcare private equity company, which has been a turnaround, which has been, you know, I think a women, by the way, often take really hard jobs. Like my friend Marissa Mayer, who wrote the intro to my book, who's a tremendous human being and a brilliant woman. She took a pretty hard job at Yahoo. Like people forget she made all of her money on Google, like all of it. And she didn't need the money. She was doing this just for the love of the game. Anyway, so I took on a hard job with this company. It was hard. I've been persevering and pursuing and rebooting culture and hiring the right people and setting a new strategy and going, running hard, which helps. All those things are, again, necessary, not sufficient. And then there have been some regulatory stuff that's come our way. Our market timing seems to be great. There's some winds that have blown in our favor that I couldn't have anticipated when I took it. It was harder than I thought it'd be. And then there have been some nice twists that were happy twists. And I think what I've learned through that whole journey from, to answer to close the question, childhood athlete in gymnastics, startup entrepreneur, and now CEO of a private equity-backed company, two really crucial things, humility and grit. <laughs> and I don't know, I think they're both crucial at each step of the way. Yeah, I'm just sitting here having a little bit of PTSD. Yeah, sorry. I too was a gymnast. <laughs> sorry about that. And, we can switch topics. You know, I, I got like pretty far and I was going to all the nationals and blah, blah, blah. And then I remember so distinctly, but one day I got up on that balance beam. I was ready to do that no-handed backhand spring. I looked down and I was like, what hell am I doing? I'm going to break my neck. And the interesting thing is that I'm actually afraid of heights now. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> I, I'm like, it, it's, it's such a weird thing. So anyway, okay, but I digress. Not mm -hmm. about me. I want to talk a little bit about you talk about your mom and you write the most beautiful tribute. It's the first thing I read when I opened your book Thanks. and it was just, it was so touching. And you know, a lot of people say, oh, they hear my family. They, they write beautiful things, but this was no bullshit. This was a great tribute to your mother. So tell us a little bit about your mom and her influence. And you talk about her being just this incredible role model. And you use those specific words again and again throughout the book. I mean, Abby and Carol, I know, Faye was a tough cookie. I mean, that was an era where our, my parents, at least my mother particularly, ruled by fear, I think, as a parent in the modern age. 
I feel like of the tools of parenting of fear and respect, I feel responsibility to command respect, but the ability to command fear, I don't, doesn't seem to be the same as it was, or I'm doing something terribly wrong. So my mother was someone who's, my grandparents fled the Holocaust from the Netherlands, came to the East Coast, uh, started anew. My grandfather uh, left, they left flourishing prominent businesses behind in the Netherlands, and he started selling paintbrushes door to door in Scarsdale, New York, and then bought the factory in Puerto Rico with a few partners that made the paintbrushes, expanded into makeup brushes, sold the company, the parent company of Crayola, invested in then a tech startup called IBM and retired in the 70s and lived till his late 90s, which was a very happy ending for him. My mother's mother died when she was 50 of BRCA-induced ovarian cancer. And so she went to Northwestern at 17, took herself there, had her mother just died. My grandfather remarried right away to who I thought was a wonderful person, but couldn't have been easy for my mom. And she never left Chicago. And I think that the resilience she had did two things. It made her an incredibly self-sufficient tenacious human being and it made her less tender and easy and cozy as a mom as an adult she's tremendous as a grandmother she's amazing but i think that you know there was a toughness and resilience which i admire as an adult daughter that she had to have to survive for herself and i think that i appreciate her role modeling of, she divorced my biological father at seven. She was on her own for five years doing the dual shift childcare scenario that those of us in dual career households both travel no far too well. And she in, she remarried my stepfather who's been in my life since 11 and who I consider my parent and gave the first toast to my wedding and is, and is an incredible role model to me in terms of entrepreneurship. He's a real estate developer in Chicago, but her career took several different paths. She started as a lawyer, hated it, calls herself a recovering lawyer ended up as the vice president of the Field Museum of Chicago, which is a super interesting job. And there's this really huge complete bronchiosaurus ever found called Sue that is in O'Hare and it's at the Field Museum. And my mom was responsible with Sotheby's and the president of the museum of getting Sue to the field versus to a Chinese private collector. Like she's had a very interesting career. Then she had to offer it to beat breast cancer. Then she came back into crisis management PR. Then because President Obama won, she ended up the U.S. ambassador to the Netherlands. So I've watched as her daughter, her career take this incredibly circuitous, nonlinear path. So A, I always knew that was possible. Right. Don't even think twice about it. B, you only understand the journey and connections in retrospect. Two, she was always in an era that was not today. Her career was never even in doubt. A, for a period of time, she had to do it because she was five years single mom. And two... She was very aware it was inextricably linked with her self-identity. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just describing her since that was the question asked. And therefore, the role modeling to me is you don't, it's part of what you do as a working mom. So I think that all of that, looking back now from where I sit today, provided incredible role modeling that I had every opportunity because there was no question of what she showed me, what you could do and you didn't have to question and you didn't have to take the linear path, et cetera, et cetera. And then secondly, let's be very honest, she gave me every opportunity. Okay, yes, I got myself into a great university, but she picked up the tuition tab. And when it was time to go to graduate school, you know, she paid tuition, I paid my my living expenses. By giving me a first-class education, she's given me every opportunity under the sun. That's what I hope to do for my children. And I feel really grateful. I mean, I really feel grateful. I think it's funny now, we say the nice touching things. When my parents hosted one of the launch parties in Chicago, my mother finally admitted the night of the event that she couldn't read the whole book till the day before and she realized she had to. And all, of her, all of her friends have been coming up for saying, we read it, we love it. It came out, I think, five, a week prior. The first events were in other places. And she said, you know, and they're like, what do you think? And she'd look at them with deer and headlights because she knew she couldn't lie, but she hadn't read the whole thing. 
And so she admitted that she couldn't get past the intro because she said it was so warm and touching that she didn't want it to might go downhill from there. But in the end, she <laughs> thought it was incredibly loving and generous and she appreciated it. But I think what I realized in saying that or anything really vulnerable, I'd also say in there about writing love letters to my husband or anything else, is I figured why wait till it's someone's eulogy? Right. I mean, why? Right. And why? Sometimes you assume people know and they don't. Yes. My husband assumes all the time that I know. So I'm like, hand him the piece of paper and the pen and say, please just write it down. But I think it's important to say it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you talk about the strength of your belief in yourself as being really pivotal to your success. But in today's women's movement, we hear, I mean, the big buzzword is about this confidence gap. That's a real thing. And I would just love for you to talk a little bit about if, A, if you've ever experienced that. And then, you know, what do you think about this confidence gap for women and how can they help themselves get over and other women help them get through yeah. that confidence gap? I think there are lots of different ways to answer the question. So I've had a handful of friends from from undergrad and business school and childhood who off-ramped for some period of time to take care of their children in their early years and then later decided to on-ramp. And I think anyone who runs going from a full-blown like pacing mile to a stop back to the same pace in the same mile is a pretty hard thing to do. And I don't mean it's anything wrong. Like that's just not a very natural thing to do. So friends of mine who have been at that start and wanting to get back in, my advice is pretty consistently try to do some project-based work. Get current. Do something three, six, nine, 12 months. See how it goes. Do it at a fair rate. You know, don't sell yourself short, but it's a nice way to get your sea legs and then get current. And then that can be a stepping stone versus like just jumping into job interviews when you've been out of it for a period of time, I think can potentially be not setting yourself up for the greatest success. And of course, I'm very willing and happy and able to give people good chances in that regard and have always been for my career. I also think that the confidence, as we all know, comes from within. So on a superficial note, if you are at that job interview and you're intimidated by it, I like to say wear your superwoman outfit. I don't care if it means getting your hair done and your makeup done or putting your dress on or wearing your combat boots. Like everyone's got her own superwoman gear, but whatever makes you feel like you've got it going on and you go to battle, like don't underestimate the power of that in getting out there for an interview, for example. But then secondly, I think it's really, uh, it is of course very, I mean, I'm a Midwest girl. It all comes from within from where, where we were raised. And I think that that's not a one size fits all answer. Some people get confidence from yoga and meditation. Some do it from athletics. Some do it by spending time with their girlfriends and feeling supported. Some do it by taking long trips with their family and husband and feeling short up in that or a partner and feeling short up in that way and being able to then go off in the world and spend some time on themselves and or with a company. I don't or an organization or as a lawyer, et cetera, et cetera. So there's not one answer I can give, but people I find do typically know what makes them feel strong and what doesn't. And doing more of the good stuff and less of the bad stuff, I think, is really the most obvious answer. And then for me, when I stepped into this role as the CEO of a private equity-backed healthcare company, I didn't know a thing about healthcare. Not one damn thing. I'd spent no time in space. I mean, I had a very, very close friend in high school named Amanda, who was a surgeon, and she made fun of me constantly in AP Biology of my inability to suture the fetal pig, and we were dissecting, and she's like, you're taking a healthcare job? That's just crazy. And she was half right and half wrong. The half right part was I didn't know what I didn't know, which can be a blessing and a curse. In this case, it was a blessing. And I didn't try to boil the ocean. I don't need to be an expert in all things healthcare. I needed to be an expert on the narrow field of minimally invasive surgical support in hospitals in running outsourcing teams for those hospitals, understanding the customer dynamics, field team dynamics, how to optimize for both of those things and provide an economic ROI that our private equity owners anticipate and expect. And, and then based on my Silicon Valley experience, bring a digitization strategy to the puzzle and then develop a brand, develop thought leadership, do the things that I knew how to do from brand building. So I think that 
I didn't know the space, but I surrounded myself by a lot of smart advisors, a lot of more women who have been in the industry 30, 40 years to help shore me up, board of directors as well as advisors. I went to industry conferences. I decided we're going to be in the space. We're going to be a thought leader. We're going to do a white paper. Hired a Stanford MBA and MBA student of mine to help research it. Like if we're going to do it, let's just not live in this space. Let's like own it. This narrow little piece of the puzzle. And I think when you set that kind of a goal, you have no choice to sink or swim. And that I think can also help. So I think very pure audacious goals can also help align goals and get you there faster, even though they seem pretty big. Let's talk a little bit more about you hiring key women, because you talk about in your book that the first thing you did was actually hire several key women. Was there a strategy behind that? Did you specifically go out to hire women? So yes and no. So the strategy was I needed to do a cultural reboot and swap out the executive team. Didn't want to spend money and didn't have the time. Worked though even more just than at the time for executive recruiters and taking the time and spinning through that cycle. So when pumping my own personal network, I found that one degree removed from me were some pretty tremendous women in healthcare with extraordinary experience or a tremendous woman in health tech. And uh, the only gentleman on the executive team is the CFO. Cliche as that might be, he's amazing. He's also young. His wife is also amazing and she is very different too. And so I always have been intentional about having diverse teams. In this particular case that I ended up hiring a very female driven executive team. If there had been great people in my network who also had the same experience set that were men, I probably would have been open to that too because I, I needed that. Where I was unapologetic was at the board of directors level. And I walked in and it was four white male, one non-white male director. And I said to the private equity firm, I was like, listen, you're going to put me on this board as a CEO of the company. I'm, I'm happy to do it. But you have to have another woman. Here's a candidate. She's phenomenal. She's done work with you in the past. She's also a mentor of mine. I'd love for her to be it. But it's your choice. If it's not her, it has to be someone else. But I am not doing this. I'm the only woman I'm not doing it. So those are my table stakes. So I was unapologetic. And I think that that's even in a privately held company in a state that doesn't require 50-50 yet, you have to walk the walk. Yeah, it has to be purposeful. It does. You know, and it's interesting. I was having a conversation um, with a, a woman the other night who, you know, had had this great career. And she was talking to me about what I did. You know, that I have diversity inclusion software platform. And she's like, well, I'm just not sure I get it. I mean, I didn't have any trouble when I was coming up. Or if I did have trouble, I just took care of it. You know, I mean, she was confident enough to do that. She was really struggling with sort of the why we need to be purposeful about it. And I was just trying to sort of describe to her, you know, that the importance of, you know, until there is equity, you have to be purposeful. Otherwise, it'll never happen. I hope by the time my little girls are of working age, that it is, you don't have to be as purposeful. And I know we've come a long way and yet there's so long to go. Someone asked me recently about what was the most sexist environment I'd been in the last two years, which was actually a pretty short time horizon. It was very easy to answer. <laughs> Our investment bankers for the company I'm currently running are terrific guys, all white dudes, and I love them all, and that's not a slam. That said, when they invited me as one of their portfolio company CEOs and my spouse to an offsite where there are 50 CEOs, guess how many of them were women? <laughs> and the daggers that their wives threw my way at the first cocktail party when my husband, who was with me, who was a pro athlete, who came to golf, who's a dude. If he had been able to be at that first cocktail party with me, it would have probably, shoulders would have relaxed. The daggers might've gone back in the purses, but we had just come back from Mexico. He got the Mexibug and was like laid up with Cipro that night and <laughs> ambulatory until the next day. So he was there like down the hall, just not functional. And I almost wanted to walk up and I was like, I cannot believe you were all standing there and Lily Pulitzer looking at me this way. <laughs> I am not here to see your husbands. Believe it or not, I'm their client. 
It was amazing. Wow. And then after the conference, and then Hal was there the next day and it was a lot easier and a lot nicer and a lot more comfortable. And then, then after the conference, I was like, guys, you got to work women portfolio company CEOs at this. And if you don't have any as clients, go get some. <laughs> well, there you go. That, that's our mission. Okay, so I want to talk about a couple other things before we close up. I want to make sure we get to them. So you talk in the book about the art of the pivot mm. and knowing when to pivot and when to quit and sort of how you overcome that. So talk a little bit about that. I think with business strategy, when to pivot versus quit is fairly nuanced based on each person's circumstances. But as the big, broad experience sets go, if you're in a point where you can't strategically stay where you are and survive, whether it's external factors like regulatory, as it were in my case, or it's internal financial. If you want to make the pivot versus raise the white flag, you have to have shared vision with everyone on your team. They have to be willing to roll like hell and knowing that there's going to be a big swell they have to get through to get to calmer seas. And you have to have enough time, and that's never going to be enough, but just enough time to pivot. You can't run out of gas halfway through energy, dollars, etc. And those factors are necessary and still not sufficient, right? Money, the shared vision, people willing to give it their all, and, you know, a period of time to get it done. With quitting, it's actually interesting. One of my mentors from Stanford is named Joel Peterson. He's the chairman of JetBlue. He's head of the Hoover Institute. He's got six children who all are each are incredible people, blah, blah, blah. He's an incredible guy. And I once was in an advisory situation with a different private equity-backed company in a family office, as it were. And it sounded great on paper. They came through trusted friends. It was the AGR Ventures years when we did advisory work when I had my second daughter, zero to two, and then had exited my first company before this. It sounded perfect on paper. We had friends in common. They seemed great. They were fun. They're big shots in the Bay Area. And as I got to working with them, I realized that like, we had a huge schism of values. Huge. Big idea, shared idea we were working on huge schism of values. And when I went to Joel and I said, what do I do? He said, people show you who they are early in relationships. It's your job to pay attention. And if it's not going well in year one, it's not getting better from here. And I walked, I walked, not because the idea wasn't great, not because I didn't love the people I brought into it, because I couldn't see it working out as us leading this thing together. And I have never regretted that choice. But I feel you quit when there's a schism of values. Okay, so I want to talk about another concept in your book that, that I know is near and dear to your heart, which is the episodic balance. Mm. And of course, it's like the number one question. Like I'm sure you get asked, how do you do work-life balance? I get asked that every single time I speak anywhere. I know it's a really big topic and a big deal. So I'm sort of making light of it only because everybody thinks that someone out there is going to have the answer. But it seems like you've come up with a pretty cool answer of your own in a way to get it at least at times. Yeah, Taylor asked me this on Spectrum News today. I think that the notion of daily balance is pretty elusive. So if every day I think about the key stakeholders in my life, right, I want to be as great of a mom as I can be. I want to be a devoted wife. I want to be a kick-ass CEO. I want to be great board member organizations I serve on, a great friend for people going through something, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, good mentor to entrepreneurs. If I woke up every day trying to get an A in each of those things, I'd wake up with an F. <laughs> and of course, we all have to take care of ourselves. What do I mean by that? I mean, like, I actually need 45 minutes to myself every day to clear my head every day for me. I'd rather get up at two in the morning and get my 45 minutes for me It's working out. But it could be anything for anybody. Meditation, taking a walk, walking your dog, staring at the ceiling, writing in a journal. There's no prescription. But for me, I need time for me. 
put your own oxygen mask first. I'm depleted. I can't give the other 23 hours a day to other people for me. But besides that one thing, I try to nail two stakeholders. Like I try to be a great mom and a great CEO. Or I try to be a great wife and a great mom. Or I try to be a great wife and a great CEO. Or I try to, you know, be a devoted friend and a devoted daughter. But I cannot do it all in every day. So I really try to do two things well and realize that balance isn't going to be achieved in a day or sometimes even two days. But over the course of a week or two weeks, in the worst case a month, hopefully then I can spend that nourishing week with my kids over winter break to make up for, you know, a bunch of days on the road. I can have a couple of romantic dinners with my husband and look him in the eye and not just have, you know, running, running, running. When I'm on the road and it's 18 hour days, like I, I use it, I work. I mean, I work, this is the time to work. And so I work, work, work. And so it's not, and I love to work hard, otherwise I wouldn't work hard, but I, I do believe that balance can be achieved if you widen the aperture of time and you think about achieving it over a handful of days or a week. And then it takes a little bit of the pressure off that single day. And yet it doesn't take the pressure off the relationships and devoting yourself to them over a short period of time, but at least makes it more realistic. I love the concept of widening the aperture of time, particularly because and it resonated with me only because I was sort of like, oh, you know, I work all the time, but oh, we're going to be, my husband's from New Zealand. So oh, we're going to be in New Zealand. So we'll be with family for three weeks, you know, but I thought I was sort of making an excuse for not always being there and doing a lot of evening events and things and being away from my family. But I read that in the book. I was like, see, she said that. <laughs> <laughs> but I highlighted it. it. I was, it's a pink highlighter. Right here. Alyssa says it's okay. And my 2020 goal and what I want to work on next year is this notion of being fully present because the hard part are the transitions, right? It, those two perfect hours with my kids, I want them to be perfect. I don't want them screaming at each other, clawing at me, you know, fighting all that charming stuff that seems to see them. <laughs> Trying to be calm and present, you know, not have this expectation of perfection, but being rolling with the punches and also being really present. They understand. Well, I started to realize in the last three months that like there are going to be a couple things that pop up on weekends. Like, And rather than that being my super quality time, that Saturday with my kids, then I will try to plan for it. Like, okay, this is the 45 minutes. Either you're going to be with daddy or a pair or whatever it is. What I'm going to try to contain some of the follow-up and then be really present. That's my goal for myself for next year. Not be dishonest that things are going to still pop in, although I do encourage you to completely immerse yourself in New Zealand, one of my favorite countries on earth, and I love it, and they're one. <laughs> but really try to be as present, present, present as I can with whatever I'm doing. In some ways, it's easier at work than at home, right? Because your kids are at school, or your family, your husband's at work too, in my case, and being really present. Because with the digital age, it doesn't go away. Yep, that's very true. Okay, well, before we go to audience questions, I do, and I'm sure that you're going to love this too, if you were in the wine business. I was. That's why we have great Farniente Chardonnay. I know. Give us some of your favorite picks. So I'll give you my favorite value picks. This is what you really want to write down. (laughs) Not in the book. Bonus hack. So I really dig Spanish whites, like Albarino. Portugal has some uh, really delicious still wines as well. All these things are $25 less. The really great wines I love are obnoxious and I can't have them all the time and I'm not even going to tease the world with them, although I do love old Bordeaux and Burgundies. I mean, I love old French wine. Once you drink enough great California wine, you fall in love with old French wine. Um, I love great champagne, the real deal, Catonger, Paul Roger, Moet, anything. I love dessert wine. Uh, Dolce by Farniente is a great gift and delicious mm-hmm. way to end a holiday meal. I also like great pork. You have to taste Moranis. Did you ever made a wine you didn't like? Yeah, I don't. <laughs> and I love New Zealand wines. I love California big, unctuous whites and reds. As you drink more wine and study more wine, this is not a personal thing, this is sort of like true 
over time. Your palate gets a little bit more refined and you don't end up liking as big of old flavors. You're liking to be a little bit more nuanced. But I can't not love California Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and Merlot and Cab. I'm not wild about some South American wines. They're a little too tannic for me and I don't mean to pan the continent. That's not fair. They're just not my favorite. <laughs> and Australian wines are pretty bimodal for me. The really great ones like Penfolds can be lovely, but some of the cheaper ones I'd rather not drink. But one or two glasses a day of wine, man. I mean, that that's like table stakes. Yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> totally agree. You know, what OBGYN is like, well, if you want to lose all of that belly weight, I would suggest you stop drinking wine. And I'm like, yeah, not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I would love to open up because I'm sure yeah. that y'all have questions <laughs> and I'd love to, to hear from you and see what resonated with you guys. All right. I'll try to limit myself. Um, so I'm, I'm interested, have you, and I haven't read the book and I'm sorry. This is it's there to buy. I will sign it after. <laughs> Done. Sold. So has your career progression always been sort of on the same? Did you ever have a time when you talk about a pivot? I sort of had my own business for nine years and then did a big pivot last year to like a new form of that business. Um, so I'm sort of like navigating almost like a startup all mm. over again. Did you ever, like when you had your kids, or was mm-hmm. there ever a point where you like stopped working in what capacity you were working mm-hmm. in and then had to restart? Yeah, so, like, so I exited my first company in 2016 and my second daughter was born in March of 2016. I'm sorry, 2015, and she's born now. So I ended up pulling a tax ID as AJR Ventures, as sole proprietorship to do advisory work. And I wanted two things, flexibility and no payroll overhead. After having fed a bunch of mouths for 10 years, I just like needed the pressure yeah, off. It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. And so I just took the leap that I, there were 10 years of relationships in the wine industry. I was at that point also teaching at Stanford Business School. So I had a little officer, which was a mile away from my kid's nursery school, which was the greatest thing ever. And husband was working in San Francisco when he, well, first he was working in LA for the Angels as their director of pro scouting and then for a fund in San Francisco. So there were a couple of years, two and a half years that I did advisory work. And I figured I would do a couple small projects early on and start hunting for some bigger projects. And it was the most organic, wonderful, and I write about it in the book. It was an incredibly satisfying two years. I nursed for a year and a half. My little one was growing. It was just, I wasn't, you know, dragging around the Medela pump to every United Club in the world, which is... I dragged around the Medela pump. I mean, <laughs> the pump and I... I almost burned it when we were done. Let me just say, (laughs) she and I had lived a long and long life together. Um, I took that time to be more flexible. As fate had it, two of the projects did require me to bring on other people to work with me. And there was one person, my director of operations from Bottle Notes, that I did bring with me, Daydare Ventures, because I knew I wanted one backstop. And so I just needed enough work to pay for him and then pay, you know, for myself. Those, and then we ballooned up to four at one point, and then it was just Anthony and me for a couple of those years. And then the beauty is when we ended up moving back to Chicago, initially we were going to move back for a different CEO job that I was working on. I was in the diligence team for a different private equity firm that they were going to buy and I was going to run. They lost the deal to a Danish public company that was in May of 17, two years later. And then I said, okay, well, I'm teaching and you've got this gig in San Francisco and I've got this project-based work with the family whose values with my schism, but it's still there. And I was like, and we'd looked at houses back in Winneka where Abby Caroline and I are from. And we were thinking about moving pretty seriously to be closer to family. And I'm like, okay, well, this isn't the right time. There'll be something else. I'll keep doing what I'm doing. And then my father-in-law passed away unexpectedly a week later. And my husband, whose parents have been married 60 years, came back from that sort of ashen. And, you know, I just, I can't imagine her now alone there. We always wanted to be back to be near all of them, but now we got to go. I was like, okay, then we go. It's the fastest decision ever made. <laughs> Two weeks later, bought a house. Four weeks later, contractors were in. 
we were weeding back across the country after 14 years in Silicon Valley. It was right. We knew it was right and we're happy to do it. The project-based work was also perfect then because I was able to keep doing that transition as got my kids settled for four months. That was probably the lightest work I'd had all the time. Got them settled in new house, new schools, started what I thought would be the CEO job circuit to have conversations with private equity firms, ended up in a really organic set of serious conversations with Sterling Partners. I wouldn't call it love at first sight, but it was like a, a good click at first sight. And I just decided to go with it. And I thought they had a coffee company and a probiotic company that I thought were a perfect fit. And that's where I thought I'd land given my consumer and e-com background. And then boom, they needed a turnaround CEO for a B2B healthcare company. And I was like, here we go. And that's how it all happened. But that two and a half years was a great transition. And that's why I can, I think, speak authentically about project-based work when people are transitioning i did it it works you have to put yourself out there you have to take the risk but so what worst case scenarios you don't get it try for the next anybody else all right well i'll stand there please drink more wine i'll stand there <laughs> and um and thank you thank you for taking time out of your holiday season to come here i'm flattered and grateful thank you again to abby and amber and caroline for inviting your friends here and to the riveter for such a great location thank you both people and thank you melinda you were terrific Best interviewer yet. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the See It To Be It podcast. For more female empowerment, inspiration, and advice, subscribe to our free weekly newsletter featuring a new woman to watch each week. And check out over a thousand more featured women at onthedotwoman.com. Know someone we need to feature? Reach out at onthedotwoman on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.